We're back here in the courtroom of current events with Peter's proffer, and we've got a topic today that uh, some big cases have been happening around the country on employees suing their employers for unpaid wages. So we're going to go through it from both perspectives, give everybody a heads up, and tell them what they should be looking for. So uh, if you want to hit us up on social media, it's at Tragos Law, and thanks for listening in. Here we go. Pay now or pay later. This is going to focus on payment of your employees. We're going to talk to employers and we're going to talk to employees. Our clients are usually employees, so that's the side that we usually look at it on. But we get so many questions from business owners in the area, even other lawyers, because they have employees in their office. They call us and they ask us, hey, what should I do when I'm paying my employee this way or paying my employee that way? Is that actually appropriate under the FLSA? So as we go throughout this podcast, we're going to try to answer those questions and explain how employers should pay their employees now as opposed to paying them later if a wage or overtime suit comes their way. So the first thing we're going to do is I'm going to have Pete explain what exactly the FLSA is. All right, we've got this law. It is a federal law called the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's been around for a long time, and frankly, it's gone through a lot of changes. But the basic premise is this. You as an employee have the right to be paid a fair wage for the work that you do. And the definitions inside the FLSA, there's frankly a lot of uh, subchapters, basically says that for a 40-hour work week, which is what is considered uh, just a, a full-time employee, you're obligated to be paid whatever your wage, your hourly wage, wage is. If you work beyond 40 hours in one week, you are then obligated to be paid time and one half of whatever it is that your normal rate of pay is. And that's really the basis of what FLSA is. Simply put, it sets the minimum wage and overtime rules, as well as the child labor laws and things like that. But each state has their own minimum wage. In Florida, it's $8.10 an hour. The FLSA, a federal statute, forces employers to abide by that minimum wage secondarily, it sets out what overtime is, which is like what Pete said. Anything over 40 hours in one work week is overtime and has to be paid at time and a half, whatever your regular hourly rate is. So when we're talking about, uh, we're, we're talking to companies and employers that have employees and we're explaining this to them, the first thing we always tell them is the burden falls on you to prove what your employee worked. We have employees come into our office and the evidence is good enough for them to say, I work 60 hours a week at this place because if the employer can't prove that that's not true, then the employee's statements and testimony sworn under oath is evidence that will count towards a verdict in their favor. So we're going to first talk about what are some things employers can do to make sure that they can prove how much an employee actually works at their office. Employers, you have to have a time clock if you have people that work on an hourly basis. It's also a good idea to have some sort of a mechanism that actually demonstrates when people are in or out of the office. When it comes to vacation time, you need to have some sort of tracker. And I understand that some of us have small businesses, so we don't have a lot of employees and we do a lot of things informally. But God forbid one employee becomes disgruntled and files a claim against you, it will be your burden to be able to prove whether a, a, a day was a vacation day, whether it was a paid vacation day, whether it was a legal holiday where your office was closed, that's going to be on you. 
Yeah, and, and we're speaking practically. So Pete says you have to have a time clock. The law doesn't say you have to have a cl- time clock, but practically speaking, whenever we see a case where the employer has a time clock, we automatically think, okay, they've got their stuff together. They're paying attention. They're making sure they know how much their employees are working. And you know, right, you don't have to have a time clock. And if you're one of these businesses that doesn't have an actual clock on the wall where people punch in and out, at least have the, your employees document things on regular basis so you have something that demonstrates when people were actually working for you. And a lot of people ask what we do. What we do is we have a time clock on each employee's computer that is set to that IP address and only that employee can clock in and clock out from that time card. And then at the end of every week, we have them approve the hours that they worked. So if it were to ever come back and somebody was to sue us for you know the, the time that they worked while we had these parameters in place, we'd have not only the times they clocked in and out, but also them approving that time. And I think that's a, a double protection to have them t- put their stamp of approval on the amount of hours they worked that week. Um, another thing that you can use is obviously the testimony of yourself, the employer, or the other employees to show that, no, that person never showed up at 830. They, they didn't start till 11 o'clock and they left at 3. So if they say they worked full-time when in reality they only worked part-time, the testimony of your other employees and your own testimony can also be evidence. That's obviously going to be ta- uh, taken as biased where a time clock is not biased. Um, so that, that's something that's important as an indication that you can use uh, for evidence. Another issue that a lot of employers um, come across is how they classify their employees. So Pete, talk about the different classifications and really the two major ones are either an employee or an independent contractor. Right. You've got one of two things. You're either uh, an individual that's working for your employer and you operate under their parameters with their tools and equipment under their guidance and you have no right to any autonomous business decisions. You are an employee. Uh, An independent contractor is a little bit different. A lot of employers try to classify their employees as independent contractors because they recognize there are uh, some favorable tax advantages to doing that thing. But you can't just make someone an independent contractor if they're not. I'll give you the difference, uh, an example between the two. If I hire a plumber and I tell him to come to my house and fix the sink, I don't control the method or the manner that they actually perform their work. I don't tell them how to fix a sink, and I'm presuming that if you call the plumber, you don't actually control their business uh, functions other than I'll see you between these hours here at my house. That is an independent contractor because they're making their own decisions. Now, if I hire a guy and I put a t-shirt on him that says Pete's Plumbing, and I send him over to a house and he performs the job I told him to perform, he used my tools, he showed up in my truck, and he has to do the job and bill it the way that I want him to, you can call that an independent contractor all day. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an employee, and that person is me bound by FLSA laws. So the, the real point of it is, does somebody work for their own business and make their own decisions, or do they just work for your business? One of the, the key factors is, are they able to work other jobs? Meaning, if it's a plumber, can he go work on Pete's house, then go work on my house, and go work on whatever house he wants? Or does he have to work on the 10 houses that Pete sends him to that day? That's the distinction is, are you actually independent running your own business or are you just doing what's best for the employer and furthering the employer's business? Because that's really how it's looked at. So that, that's an important thing is make sure you have your employees classified properly because that'll come back to bite you if you do it improperly. Even if you think you're saving a little bit of money now, you're going to pay for it later. Um, in the FLSA, they have non-exempt employees and exempt employees. 
a lot of businesses do have exempt employees. So we're going to talk about a couple of these exemptions um, and how they fit into to an employer's business. But there is a slew of exemptions that are all on the actual FLSA website, which you can just Google and find if there are you know tons of exemptions for truck drivers, outside sales, things like that. But we're going to talk about the two most common exemptions, which are uh, managerial exemption, exemption and the administrative exemption. So Pete, why don't you go through what the elements are that you have to hit to be a manager in a managerial exemption? Right. First things first, to be a manager that's exempt, you actually have to, in fact, be responsible for people. You have to have the authority to hire and fire, and you have to have uh, some basic employment rights. For example, you have to be on salary, and that salary has to be more than, Peter, what's, it just changed, right? $913 a week is the new amount, which just uh, updated within the last year. So in order to be a manager, you have to actually direct the work of two or more employees. You have to actually not just hire and fire, but if you don't have the authority to fire somebody on the spot, your opinion has to matter for the boss. Basically, they have to take your opinion into account when hiring and firing people. You have to manage the enterprise that's furthering the business. And then the most important is you have to make $913 a week. So what that means is if you're the only manager in the the place, you have 40 employees under you, you hire and fire, you make all the decisions, but you make $500 a week, you do not fit in that managerial exemption. So that's a really important one. You have to be making that amount of money. Um, the administrative exemption is the next one. To be an exempt administrative uh, person, you have to actually work in the office. You cannot actually do manual labor. Now, not only do you have to work in the office, but the decisions you make and the work that you do has to be uh, directly related to your employer's business operation. You have to uh, exercise independent judgment, which means you have to actually be able to make decisions for the business. And the decisions you make have to be significant, uh, not just you know rudimentary type uh, events. And you also, again, have to make that $913 a week in order to fit into that administrative exemption. Um, and then there are a lot of exemptions that you know seem obvious, like the uh, higher learning exemption or higher salaried exemption. If you make over $100,000 a year, you're exempt. If you're a doctor or lawyer or accountant or you have some specialized degree, then you're exempt. So a lot of those obvious ones are. But, but two of the ones that really we have the most issues with or employers have the most issues with is the managerial exemption and the administrative exemption. So that's why we touched on those kind of more specifically. Um, and now we're going to talk about, talk to employers about what non-exempt employees are. And most of the time, those are your general regular hourly workers with no specializations or certifications. Now, if you're one of these employers that employs people that let's just say, aren't legal or they're undocumented, those are non-exempt employees. You have to pay them accordingly uh, with FLSA, whether or not they're documented uh, because they're performing work for you. The next uh, major issue that we identify is don't try to be creative in the classification. The majority of the people in the workforce that function uh, on an hourly basis are going to be non-exempt employees. So no matter how you cut the pie, you can't just give them a pretty title or you can't just decide that you want them to be independent contractors and it just makes them that. It's just not, not the way it works. So in reality, this goes to some of the shady business owners, but just so you know out there, if you employ you know, undocumented aliens or you pay people under the table or you don't pay child support or you don't pay the taxes out of these people's wages, 
all those people are still non-exempt employees. Just because you have some handshake deal with them does not mean they can't turn around and sue you if they figure out you're paying them less than eight bucks an hour or you're not paying them overtime if they work more than 40 hours a week. So the real question from employers is, how can you protect yourself? Look, it's real simple. Don't cut corners. Pay your people the wage that they're due and the wages that they're owed, and you'll never have a problem. Keep a time clock or some sort of tracking uh, for your employees and what they do. Um, Take the proper taxes out of it. Take child support out of it. Follow the law when you pay your people. Don't pay them under the table even if they ask. Don't pay them less than minimum wage even if they agree to it. Don't pay them straight time for overtime even if they agree to it at the time. Just follow the law. Pay them a little bit more now so that you pay a lot less later. That, that's really the point of it. The reality is if you think you might be able to get in trouble because of something, you probably will. And it's just only a matter of time until these things come back to bite employers. And it's not a bad thing to call an employment law lawyer, run your business practice by them, and see what they think and let them give you an opinion on how you can do better to protect yourself with these hourly employees just to make sure you're covered in case anything happens in the future. Because there is one important thing with these wage and overtime claims. You can go back three years if you can if the employee can prove that this was done purposefully, meaning willfully on purpose, you were paying people less than minimum wage or not paying them overtime, it goes back three years. If it was negligent and you, right when you found out about it, you fixed it, they can only go back two years. So that's a big difference sometimes if you have some of these long-term employees. And we're going to transition now into talking to employees. See what they can look for in the job that you work for to make sure you're being paid properly. So, Pete, why don't you first talk about what they should look for to see if they're being paid properly in their current jobs? All right. First things first. Uh, you need to be making, if you live, uh, if you work in Florida, $8.10 per ordinary hour of labor. If you take 40-hour a week and divide it by what you your check is, your gross check, and it doesn't equal $8.10, you have a problem. You need to, come see, you need to go see a lawyer. Secondly, You cannot waive that overtime right. You cannot, I'm sorry, that minimum wage right. You cannot waive that overtime right. If your employer has you sign a contract saying, I agree to make $7 an hour, that is not a real thing. That is not binding. You can uh, circumvent that due to the FLSA. If you agree with your employer, I'll work 60 hours a week at straight pay, $10 an hour. You cannot do that. You cannot waive this federally protected right. And the reason for that is the federal government wants to protect people from themselves. They are not in a good negotiating position when their livelihood and their family's health and food is on the line and you have this big business that can take advantage of them and say, $8.10 an hour, I'll let you work 60 hours a week so you can make more than that other place that doesn't let you work overtime, but I'll pay you straight pay. That's not a good negotiating position for that hourly worker, so the FLSA protects them whether or not they want to be protected. We've also uh, seen a lot of Uh, unfortunate circumstances where employees come in and they tell us things like, well, my employer says I can work 40 hours on the clock and another 20 hours off the clock. They'll pay me the money for that 20 extra hours under the table, off the books. um, And that's a good idea, right? Well, so that leads us into the next section, which is going to be, what do you look for in your job to see whether or not these employees are paying you or these employers are paying you properly or what's some telltale signs that you're probably not getting paid properly? And number one is getting paid cash under the table for any portion of what you make, like Pete was just talking about. The second one is if you work through your lunch break, but they make you clock out for an hour each day. 
Another one is if your employer controls your time clock, meaning they go back in and they set your hours every week as opposed to you punching in and out. Uh, we've also seen people that have their hourly rates adjusted. So they'll make, you know, whatever, 10 bucks an hour straight time. And then for their overtime, their employer will adjust them down to $8.10. That way they, they save money on that overtime. Yeah, I get you're making more money because you're working a, a ridiculous amount of hours, but they can't just unilaterally change your hourly rate. Uh, additionally, if they have you working off the clock work, meaning you get to work an hour before you clock in and you start up or you get your section ready or you clean up an hour after the clock, that is not appropriate. You should be getting paid for that off the clock work. Uh, additionally, like Pete was talking about adjustments in your hourly rate. Some people, when they quit, an employer will try to go back the last two weeks and cut them down to minimum wage, even though they already had an agreed on hourly rate that they were supposed to get paid for that work. So they can't retroactively go back and take money from you. Uh, another thing that's common people call in and ask is, uh, can I get paid time off instead of overtime? Meaning I have 20 hours of overtime, but instead they're giving me an extra 20 hours of paid time off at straight time. You cannot substitute overtime for paid time off. You have to get paid that time and a half. And there's my personal favorite. When you are obligated to go to, in quotes, work events, uh, yet you're not paid for them. If you have to go to your company party, if you have to show up for a meeting, if you need to uh, get your workstation prepared before the workday begins, that, ladies and gentlemen, is work. And you are obligated to be paid for it. Anytime you're required to be somewhere for your work, you have to get paid for it and it has to go into your hourly uh, work week. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is a lot of people call with special circumstances. Um, and there's a little bit, it's a little bit more interesting when calculating the hours that they work. So Pete, why don't you first talk about tipped employees? Yeah. For all those of you that are in the food service industry, uh, mostly waiters and waitresses fall into this category. In other words, you make tips and the law is pretty clear. Uh, if you're making good tips, uh, and you're making more than $8 and 10 cents per hour, when you determine the aggregate of the hours that you work in a 40 hour week, you're fine. Uh, there's no issue there. But if you work and the amount of tips that you are given do not amount to $8.10 per hour. Your employer has to up your pay to make sure that you at least make the state minimum wage. And then the next two we've kind of already hit on. So the first one is misclassified employees. So if, you are, if you've signed an independent contractor, but you think that you're actually an employee, go through the test we mentioned above, call a lawyer, go through it with them, let them know what you're dealing with and see what you can do to, to fix it or to get yourself classified properly. And then the last one is uh, getting paid under the table. You still are entitled to $8.10 an hour. You're still entitled to time and a half overtime. You're still entitled to all those pre pre protections, even if you get paid under the table. And that kind of transitions us into our last point is people are scared to call a lawyer and ask about this stuff. But what's cool about the FLSA is it has protections that, again, help the little guy, which is the hourly worker, versus the big company or the boss or the employer. And I'll let Pete talk about what some of those protections are that are built into the FLSA. The biggest protection, in my opinion, is that the FLSA provides for attorney's fees and the cost of litigation to be paid on top of whatever wages are due to an employee. And that's kind of a big deal because if you have a circumstance where, you know, you're owed, let's just make it up, 500, 1,000, 1,500 bucks. We realize that going to an attorney's office, hiring them to get your 1500 bucks, and the costs associated with filing a lawsuit are going to far eclipse that $1,500 that you're owed. 
So one of the things that FLSA is designed to do is it's designed to give the employee the benefit to raise these claims. So when you go and see that attorney, they're going to take that case and whatever you're owed, you're going to get for you. And your employers or the employer that's uh, found to be uh, responsible is going to be obligated not only to pay whatever your hourly rate is and your overtime and potentially liquidated damage we'll talk about in a second, but they're going to be paying for those attorney's fees and the cost of litigation on top of all that. Yeah, so it one caveat, you have to be the prevailing party. So if you go lose, then the employer is not going to pay for your attorney's fees. But if you're a prevailing party, meaning you, meaning you either get a settlement or you win at trial, the employer has to pay for everything, all the attorney's fees, all the costs. And the main reason for that and the policy behind that is if you're making hourly, if you're making an hourly wage, okay, and you're not making above the exempt amount, and your employer has withheld two weeks, four weeks, two months of hourly pay from you, there is absolutely no way you're going to be able to pay a lawyer because you just strictly do not have the money to do that. And on top of the fees and costs, Pete mentioned liquidated damages. So that's why we titled this pay now or pay later, because if your employer decides to pay later and withhold this money from you for months or even years sometimes, they're going to be hit with liquidated damages, which is double the wages that you're owed. So in that example, Pete gave, if you're owed $1,500 and we go to trial and we win, not only do they have to pay you that $1,500, they have to pay us all our attorney's fees, all the costs that we had to procure as part of this litigation, and then they pay you another $1,500 in liquidated damages just for all the trouble and really to punish those employers that are withholding this money from their employees. Yeah, uh, that's right. And the, the reality is the liquidated damages is a penalty, and it's designed to, to really give the employer a good reason an to incentive. pay. An incentive. An incentive, sure, to pay it now. Because really, the federal courts where most of this stuff gets filed, they're, really, they're inundated, believe it or not, with these types of claims. And you'd be surprised how many claims. There's a really good case out there uh, here in the middle district of Florida out of Tampa. So what happens in this case? The plaintiff brings a cause of action against his employer. Two counts. Count one is that he owes him like a thousand bucks in wages, and count two is that they discriminate against him. The employer denies the allegations, makes the employee go to trial. After the trial, the jury comes back and says that the employer did not discriminate, but they do find that the employer does owe the $1,000. So what happens? The judge's order in this case is spectacular. He basically tells the lawyers, look, you lost the case on the, um, on, on the discrimination, so you can't get paid for that. But whatever monies and time you expended in the recovery of the $1,000, you get to recover. So what happened? The employee got $1,000 in wages, $1,000 in liquidated damages, and if I'm not mistaken, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, like $100,000 in correct. fees and costs. It was in excess of $100,000 in fees and costs just to prove the wage case. That's striking out all the time that the attorneys actually worked on the discrimination case, which everybody thought was the big part of the case. I think they were asking for like a million dollars in the discrimination case, which they lost, but they ended up getting the employee's wages back and the employer paid a lot more later than they would have paid if they would have just paid him those $1,000 when he was owed. So I think there's a lot of good information in here for employers and employees to make sure you're protecting yourself out there in the workforce. Uh, thanks a lot for listening with us today.